British Army is coming home from Germany. We hear how the most senior soldier there plans to make it happen. The trick is keeping, I think, a full variety of all the services, whether it's health, education, social work, transport, you name it, all the infrastructure services that we do, keep those going full pelt right to the end and then shut the whole place at once. But will it be that simple? This week, the Ministry of Defence announced the final details of its army rebasing plan, which will see 15,000 troops redeployed from Germany to bases back in the UK. There's been a British presence on the Rhine for more than 70 years. The last barracks there could be closed as early as 2018. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Services Institute, and as usual, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Professor Clark, it's been on the cards for some time now. We were just waiting waiting on the dates and the details. Um, what is it what you expected? Uh, no, it isn't, actually, because um, all of the mood music was that um, in order not to have to spend money just at the moment, that this decision to withdraw entirely by, from Germany by 2020 might well have been put back. And I have to say, I was a little bit surprised that um, Secretary of State, Mr Hammond, made the sort of strong statement that he did. And I, I guess full marks to him. And, of course, remember, this follows from his statement, you know, ring-fencing from the Treasury, uh, the defence budget. He's really put himself on the line there. And the day after, or two days after, he then makes this statement, which says, we will spend the money. There's a little bit of headroom in the present defence budget. We will spend the money to upgrade the bases in, in Britain, bring the troops home even earlier than we said, and that that is a strategically literate thing to do. Sooner or later, the troops have got to come back from Germany. But I think most of us expected them to go for the avoidance of immediate expenditure on these big bases that they now need to create uh, when things are so tight. Christopher, all happening more quickly, as we just said, than expected. Why do you think that is? Um, I go along with Mike and the idea that uh, it was a sense of emergency. Now, I'll take it a stage further. If you did it later... Where was the money coming from to do it properly? Um, it could have only come from, for example, it could only come from an equipment budget because the Defence Secretary and a load of guys around him believe that there isn't going to be anywhere near the amount of money in the Defence budget in, let's say, five or six years' time. Announce it now, get yourself committed to it now, and in theory you've got the money for it, even though it's spread over the next 10 years. And I think that had something to do, uh, do with it. The other part of it, uh, we, we, we talk about this is all happening very quickly. Uh, I seem to remember 1991, the then GOC in, in Germany, saying that we think we'll be out of here by 2015, and that's the plan at the moment. Hmm. And they were working on a plan. They had a piece of paper and there was guys working on it. So it's not just something that was spun out of the 2010 uh, Defence Review. Indeed. Um, Professor Clark, um, on the Scottish question, not as many troops being posted there as had been thought. There had been 7,000 extra expected and it's going to be around 4,000, isn't it? Mm. Um, yes, yes. Is, is this politics at work because of the Scottish independence vote? 
Well, it, it, I think it is, but not really on the numbers. Uh, it, would, it was clever to make sure that, of course, troops are going to Scotland. If the, if the government in Westminster had wanted to send a, a rather dangerous signal to Scotland, it would have said, well, we're not having a base in Scotland because we just don't know what the situation is. But, of course, the, the view around Whitehall is Scottish independence essentially won't happen. We, will not, we won't talk about it. It's not a realistic possibility. That's the, that's the quiet view around Whitehall. And so, of course, we're going to, we're going to have a base in Scotland. But it's going to be less than we imagined, and I, I think there is, a, is a, a rather subtle message. I mean, yes, of course we are committed to a UK-wide military, which of course includes Scotland, but you can't expect us to put more into Scotland, uh, as we have done in the past, for some political reasons in this time of uncertainty. Bear in mind that about a quarter of Britain's defence industrial base by value and also by jobs, is in Scotland, and that's mainly for political reasons. Indeed, and buried in the small print on the day of that announcement, Christopher, was the news that the Desert Rats would be losing their tanks. Is this? I thought they were already... We knew that. They so were already losing them. The whole idea is, when we talk about tanks, the whole idea, the concept of the main battle tank has been questioned for some so time. So it's just part of military strategy being born out then, is it? It is. I think it's a, 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 a lot of that. It's rather like Scotland. Uh, when you restructure your, your military ideas, you do so not just because of the money, not just because you don't want that particular unit, you do want this unit. It's because government is starting to think what it's going to be doing over the next 15, 20 years. You know, no Afghanistan, no Afghanistan-type wars, perhaps. And so you start thinking of that. So when you say, look, do we need the whole of Kinloss to sort of deploy or use it as a barracks or, or somewhere like that, you start saying to yourself, well, hang on, you know, what sort of people are we sending there? How will we move them about? What will be the command structure? And it's simply, I think it's simply a, a rethink. And when you think about it, it's, let's say, 7,000 to Scotland originally. Uh, you bring it down by 3,000, and you think you're not doing that much more than you intended to do in the first place. I mean, the only people are getting really grumpy about this. Uh, well, two pe lots of people. One would be the SMP, Alex Salmond, and his lot. And probably you might find the odd general's got a grass more up there would, would be wanting to spend far more time with his guns, but nobody else is going to get upset. Professor Clark, when you look at the detail of what was announced, what does it tell you about the future shape of the British Army and what it's going to be intended for? What messages do you get? The messages we get is that they're serious about uh, a reaction force and an adaptive force. I mean, I know these, these sound like uh, f uh, sort of slogans, but actually they are restructuring the army, and that's the, the pain that the old desert rats feel. And I, I stress, as, with, as Christopher says, it's not the present desert rats, uh, the 7th Armoured, who are so concerned about this. It's the old desert rats who feel the, the pull of the emotion. So the army is restructuring itself around... Uh, forces which will be in uh, very as well, almost multi-role brigades, very adaptable brigades, but also brigades which can hit hard. The questions, of course, for the army is how how much can it sustain? We know that it's it's at the top of its of its game in terms of combat power. It's 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 equal to the best in the world. It's not it's not better than the best in the world, but it's equal to the best in the world, and it can hit hard and strong. The, the question is, can it stay and sustain itself? And I think those are the issues that we've got to ask ourselves after the sort of 2018-2020 period. And the other thing to think about, Mike, is, is, it, is it's not as if the whole British Army is coming home. I mean, we're still thinking about necessarily the instant deployment, but having the, the, the ability to deploy, for example, two tactical brigades to the Gulf. Uh, and then building, what about building a new 
barracks in Bahrain, updating the Royal Navy in Bahrain, mm. uh, and also working with the old five-power defence arrangements. Uh, it's, it's a typhoon going out some exhibition and show uh, in, in Malaysia at, at, at the end of this month. Yeah. These things are important. It's not a question of, of, of the British Army, at least, retreating. Well, yeah, and, and I just say that um, uh, Prime, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe um, actually ran an op-ed last week talking about Japan entering in the five-power arrangement. Um, these sort of things, you're, you're absolutely right, these sort of sort of things are bubbling up on the agenda. And the Japanese are now saying, why shouldn't we come into the five-power arrangement? And they've now got a three-star... And the three-star Air Force, Australian Air Force guy, now going to command it. That's up, up that level. And we're very much sort of thinking, you know. Okay. We, we, we've really got to take part in this. Well, let, let's return to Germany for the moment and hear how the head of the British Army there, Major General John Henderson, has been speaking to our reporter Ali Gibson about the drawdown. He told her that all the moves would be completed in line with the government's new schedule. I think, yes, I am confident, yeah. It's a, it, it's a challenging... Uh, schedule, and particularly if you start looking at the numbers that are moving, in, particularly in 2015, uh, lesser extent 2014, um, and then of course the the one thing that we weren't quite expecting uh, was the the thing of not before 17 for Parabon. So that's something that we we have to work through and work out. That's a little bit sooner than we expected. But the others were with the work and that being done in Army 2020. It was um, we, it's what we, what we were expecting. Are you yourself at the moment are working and living in a closing barracks? Do you think there's any lessons we can learn from here in JHQ for future closures? Yeah, there is. Um, we've um, we are sort of stumbling to a halt here in JHQ uh, with the arc having left in 2010, I think, and uh, so the place looks a little bit shabby because we are shutting things down slowly and surely. The, the trick is keeping, I think, a full variety of all the services, whether it's health, education, social work, transport, you name it, all the infrastructure services that we do, keep those going full pelt right to the end and then shut the whole place at once. So that's the intent will be. We're calling it cliff edge, for want of a better expression, and the idea is we'll run, for example, run Bergenhona and... Uh, you know, Fallingbostel right to the end. Everyone will, you know, all the facilities will work for the families and the soldiers. And then after everyone's gone, we shut it down. Because one of the things I spoke to the AFF director in Germany the other day, and she said one of the things that families are concerned about is that infrastructure, is that barracks might kind of everything will disappear before they themselves leave. Are you confident then that you no. can keep that up? We will, we will, that's, that's, that's priority one for me is keep, you know, high quality services going right to the end. What we're trying to do also, because there'll be a, there will be a perception, people will say, oh, that's not happening because we're going and, and you know, whether it's your house didn't get redecorated or whatever it happens to be, people will interpret that and say, that's because of that. There's other things we're trying to do here to make quality of life better for the families. And that, things like, you know, the over-the-counter service for BFG uh, vehicle registration. You know, we're about to announce something on headlights. Uh, we're trying to um, reorganise the, the, the way that we do fuel. Uh, all those things to make life easier for the families. Uh, because... You know, that's, that's important, the quality of life, and, and that Germany re re continues to be an attractive place to serve. Now, one of the other topics I wanted to ask you about was training. Um, Germany's always been a fantastic place with the ranges, particularly for armoured brigades. How are they going to meet those training needs in the future once those brigades are back in the UK, do you think? Well, that's a subjective piece of what's, what's going on in Army headquarters right now. Um, and it won't surprise you to know that we haven't actually come up with a complete solution yet. But my prediction is that we'll end up doing some training in Germany. Quite how much that is, subject, you know, we'll work it out for ourselves in, in the next few months. But we obviously have to work with the Germans. And interestingly, I was in Berlin yesterday, 
and speaking to the German general who is responsible for training areas, they are doing the same thing. So they're looking at their training areas. We need to work with them and work out how much, if any, of the proportion of time in which training areas so we work with the Germans. It's, a, it's always been collaborative and we're going into a new phase so we have to obviously do this collaboratively with them. That was Major General John Henderson talking to our reporter, Ali Gibson. Professor Michael Clark, interesting there what he said about training. Will it have an impact? Yes. Uh, you, you can't believe that, uh, you know, the rundown of facilities, d despite what he said about the cliff edge, which I absolutely appreciate, I mean, won't, won't have an impact on training because these sorts of things are they're, they're disruptive to personnel, they're disruptive to the lives of the families, and it, because they're expensive, you do have to cut back on certain things. So I, I think there will be an impact on training, um, but I'm sure they'll work to reduce it, and it will probably only be in the short term. The, the most important thing in terms of keeping our defence forces as good as they have been is to get back on track after 2015 um, with the, the, the expertise and the personnel and the quality of what they do. And, that, I mean, that has undoubtedly... It, it suffered th through operations in Afghanistan in the sense that if you've got a lot of forces going through Afghanistan, they're not training for other things. And, you know, I've, I've got friends who are now uh, left, second lieutenants and captains who've done nothing but Afghanistan since they joined the army. And so their skill set is very high in one area but pretty low in others. So you've, we've got to get back to that sort of level of training. And I believe we will... But there is a, undoubtedly a dip for all these various reasons in the next couple of years. And Christopher, talking there, he did seem very confident about the drawdown in Germany, talking about this cliff edge um, and about the services continuing. But what about when the troops arrive back in Britain? Uh, £2 billion on new buildings, accommodation, infrastructure, etc. Will it be enough and will it be ready in time? That's Absolutely. The this, if you happen to be a soldier and you happen to be in the family... Uh, of the RB. This is the crucial part, isn't, isn't it? Is the accommodation going to be available? It doesn't matter whether, you know, you've got two million or, or two billion, rather, to Already spend on this. Already it would seem that some of it isn't, well, yeah, and but it the will point be temporary. Is, yeah, but the point is, you know, what's two billion? I mean, 1.8 of that's just going into the, uh, going into the, in, into the accommodation. That doesn't matter. Is it going to be ready? Will the schools be ready to take up to about 7,000 kids into the school system. What about the medical services, the public, the NHS medical services? These are the essentials. If you're serving somewhere at the time that your unit's going to come back, you really want to know, do we go back in... You know, when I walk into the, uh, in, in, into the quarters, if I pick up the telephone, does it work? It's that sort of, it's that sort of simple. Do that... And then you know that you've got a very efficient organisation under you, and that makes a big difference to people. Well, Rosie Layden has spent a day with the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps headquarters, one of the first units to relocate from Germany to Gloucestershire back in 2010. She's been talking to soldiers and their families about what it's like to come back to the UK. Less than three years after moving into what was once RAF Innsworth, the ARC are currently on five days' notice to move anywhere in the world. For the 1,000-strong headquarters, coming back to the UK was a big operation. Signaller Matthew Clare came over with 22 Signal Regiment. It was a big move from Germany to here. Like, the service desk has progressed since they've come here. It's got a lot bigger with the personnel. The ARC Support Battalion are responsible for keeping the headquarters well-fed, in good health and protected against enemy attack. The move has meant big changes for them too. Private Richard Finch is part of 14 Transport Squadron. Everything's easier. You can sort out cars, phones, just everything's so much easier being over here than it is in Germany. Yeah. Do you miss anything? Uh, 
the money and the nightlife, yeah. And you live with the boys all the time in Germany. No one goes home, so it's more of a bond, really, in Germany with the lads. Long before the soldiers started arriving back, work was underway to prepare their new home. Bernard Barton Ancliffe, the Innsworth station officer, gave me a tour of some of the new developments at the base. So, Bernard, tell me about the changes that have been made here um, from being an RAF base to making it in Bim Barracks. Well, when the RAF were here, they had far fewer military personnel than when the army uh, came here. And so the first thing we had to do was build a lot more accommodation for the, uh, particularly for the single soldiers who came here. And this is one of the blocks that you can see we built for them. We had approximately 200 bed spaces on the camp. Now we've got 500, so a significant uh, increased build that we had to have for them. And along with that additional military personnel, you, you've had to build other things to, to support them? Yes, we did indeed. Um, there are a lot more vehicles here, so we had to build a brand new vehicle workshop here. We had to build a briefing theatre, very useful for the ARC. They have a lot of briefings and exercises to do in there. Brand new armoury because we've got a lot more weapons. And another interesting thing, which is outside the camp, we built a brand new nursery because there are a lot more families here as well and so the children uh, have to have a nursery to go to. The In Club at Imjin Barracks is a new group for mums like Sarah Gill and Amy Cluett who are settling into their new life in Gloucestershire. It's nice to be in England. It's nice to be near family. It's nice to have your, know where you're going for things. What about you, Amy? What, what does it mean being, being here in Gloucestershire? Obviously, Ark used to be in Germany. Um, what's it like being here from a family point of view? Um, it's really handy. As my mum and dad live in Gloucester, so it's nice to be back home. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, it's really friendly here and there's lots, always lots of things to do. For many soldiers and their families, living and working in the UK is a positive development. But people like Lieutenant Colonel Ian Woodbridge, the ARC's Chief of Public Affairs, who spent most of his career in Europe, worry that we will lose some of our understanding of other nations. I think that's going to be inevitable. Unless you're immersed in the culture overseas and you're on the other side of the channel, you don't really understand the way that the other nationalities think. Yes, there will be certain people that we will have in, say, for example, the NATO command structure or in the NATO force structure, like this headquarters, who will have a better appreciation of it. But as I think as we pull back everybody from Germany, there will inevitably be a loss of understanding and, and perhaps sympathy with other nations' perspectives. Over the next seven years, 15,000 Germany-based troops will have to follow in the ARC's footsteps as they readjust to a new life back in Britain. BFBS reporter Rosie Layton there. Still to come, Falkland Islanders prepare to vote on whether they want to continue as a British overseas territory. We've certainly got to show the world that it's our generations to come that's uh, going to protect our, you know, keep our islands going. And who will be the next Chief of Defence Staff? We look at the possible contenders for the UK's top military post. MPs of all parties are warning the government against being dragged into the conflict in Syria. The UK will provide help to forces opposed to President Assad, providing armoured vehicles, body armour and search and rescue equipment. The measures stop short of arming the rebels. Professor Michael Clark, was this the right thing to do? I think this is an attempt by uh, the government to, as it were, lead the Europeans. The United States is not going to take a big lead on this one, and if the British don't take an assertive lead with France involved in 
the Sahel and Mali, then the Europeans won't. And I think what Mr Haig was trying to do is to say that within the limits of the EU law, what we are allowed to offer, which and that has been relaxed in the last uh, 10 days, within that we're going right up to the edge of that limit. So communications, infrastructure, those are the things that will make the biggest difference. Armoured vehicles, of course, caught everyone's attention, but no, we are not talking about British armoured vehicles being transferred to the, Libyan op- to the Syrian opposition, not vehicles from Afghanistan. The one thing the British don't want is British armoured vehicles turning up on news in Syria. But we are talking about armoured 4x4s, people carriers, that the diplomats use, or maybe something a little bit stronger. And my understanding is that these things will be sourced, all of these things will be sourced by DFID, not by the MOD. Our MOD had almost nothing to say about this list when I talked to them. So where are they coming from, Christopher? The idea is that you keep distance between the MOD and even the Foreign Office, or the Foreign Office have to take the lead on this, uh, because as Mike says, you don't want them turning up on the nine o'clock news, and, uh, because let's put it in a simple way, if you put an armoured vehicle, or an, an armoured vehicle being something that can be a people carrier that's armoured, yeah, and then you stick uh, a machine gun on the top, tell me what it is, and that is the simplicity of it, and that is the danger. Um, body armour, fine give people body armor um it doesn't mean to say that you're going to stop people being killed it just means that you've got body armor and that's the simplicity the other thing to look for though is that there are large arms shipments which are already taking place which are coming in via croatia and then croatia and then into turkey and then to the into the rebel forces a lot of these are being bankrolled by the saudis and the Qataris. And the Saudis in particular want the British to support the idea and maybe even finance some of this. And so we don't directly put in weaponry into the rebel hands, but we are bankrolling it in some way. And it's on principle. So it's a step It doesn't make any difference. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, the Saudis could sort of stop, you know, bankroll the whole of the re- rebellion if they wanted to. But they need that, and they need to involve other countries so that when you go to the United Nations, this goes, things, goes to a vote, and you want support within the EU, trying to get the EU to change the position even more than they have, as Mike says, in the past 10 days. This is... You know, you're getting into it. Now, this doesn't mean, say, boots on the ground or anything Mm. like this, but it's also quite interesting that it's only a couple of months ago, a few weeks ago, when the chief, the defence staff, um, General Richards, was sort of thinking aloud and said, well, you know, it is possible to do this. It is possible to get involved. And it may be on specifics, like going searching out CW or or something like that. Or or, or specialist, specialist groups. But there is something much bigger going on here. Otherwise, why would you be doing it? Professor Clark, um, Christopher talking there about ways that Britain may get involved behind the scenes. Um, mm. And the warning is that we're edging closer to a potential, some kind of intervention. What more could Britain do? You're saying they're leading the EU. What do you think it might consider? Well, I think we're trying to lead a diplomatic effort to put as much pressure on Assad as possible to give the opposition uh, as much chance as possible without putting our fingers in the mangle, as they say, and getting absolutely directly involved. <clears throat> but remember, the, the, the thing that's bothering all of the Western powers now is not so much what is going on in Syria, though that is worrying enough, but what may now be going on around it. Because what what the fear now really is, is that if Syria turns into or tips over into a really sectarian conflict, it isn't quite there yet, but it's certainly on, the, on that road, if it does that, then we may see a real 
antagonism, a real conflict from the Levant to the Gulf between the sheer minority in Syria, the sheer majority in, Iran, in Iraq, backed by Iran, and the Sunni uh, elements in uh, the Lebanon, the Sunni majority in Syria, the Sunni minority in Iraq, backed by Saudi Arabia. And that scenario is not too far away. And so what the British are trying to do is to put as many diplomatic pegs in the ground to help uh, our friends and our supporters in the Middle East to sort of hold the ring against the Syrian conflict just oozing outwards. That's a real problem. OK, well, let's move now to the Falklands because this weekend islanders can vote in a referendum on whether they want to remain part of Britain. Of a population of just under 3,000 people, approximately 1,600 are eligible to vote and turnout is expected to be high. BFBS reporter Kath Brazier is in the capital Stanley ahead of the weekend's events. Shop windows, front gardens, even the roofs of houses, all adorned with the Union flag. In Stanley, at least, it seems the islanders have already decided. $22, please, my dear. Sibby Summers owns the Pod gift shop with her husband, Teddy. I think it's very important to us. I mean, we've certainly got to show the world that it's our generations to come that's uh, going to protect our, you know, keep our islands going. It's important to us, yeah, to lift the world, to lift the rest of the world now. Just over the road is the Globe Tavern, run by Don Peck, a St. Helenian who's been here for 14 years. Anyone on the Falklands with a Falkland Island never ever did class themselves as Argentina, always British, so I don't know where they get me this idea that it was originally Argentina. The sole question on the polling form is do you wish the Falkland Islands to retain their current political status as an overseas territory of the United Kingdom? The answer required a simple yes or no. There is rumoured to be a small minority of islanders who will either vote no or not at all. Don Bonner, a World War II veteran, warns against that. I think that Argentina internally is in a mess and they're talking about the Falklands all the time to draw the attention away from home. The vote is taking place on Sunday and Monday as well as four static polling stations. Dedicated mobile teams are driving and flying across the islands to ensure that everyone who wants to vote can. The result is expected late Monday night. Kath Brazier for BFBS in Stanley. Christopher, Argentina has described this vote as an illegitimate publicity stunt not recognised by the UN. Does that matter that it isn't? It's not a question. They're wrong when they say it's not recognised by the UN. There is a permanent standing committee in the United Nations which is looking at the post-colonial, you know, tidying up the old colonial regimes, etc. And their idea is this. Any colonial society which needs to be tidied up, to be handed back, independence, whatever, that ought to be emphasised. And Falklands is very much on it. And for that reason, you have organisations like the United States would not support now Britain's position on the Falklands. And one of the reasons they won't is because they're very much tied up, their politics in the future are very much tied up in, in Latin America. And of course, Latin America supports the Argentinians on this. Finally this week, we're expecting an announcement soon about who the next Chief of Defence Staff and Chief of the General Staff will be. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, who's your money on? Uh, my tip for the top uh, for CDS is uh, Nick Horton, who's presently the Vice Chief. And I would not be surprised if uh, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stu Peach didn't step up into the Vice Chief's role. So I th uh, my guess is Nick Horton for CDS and Stu Peach for VCDS. And Christopher? Yes, I thought Nick Horton. And one, one, I mean, it's a pity it's not an apple, of course, but never mind. <laughs> um, 
I you thought, can't get the real name no, out, Christopher I, Lee, can no, you? No, I, th- I, I, I thought Nick Horton because he, he was he was quite a close runner, wasn't he, uh, Mike, for, uh, to be CGS? He was, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, 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 and where is it at the moment? It's this tremendous grasp, but it says something else. In future, I mean, it used to be Buggins' term uh, one time, you know, you went through service by service, but think in the future what we've been talking about all this week about the future of the British Army. It is the future of the British Army is going to decide, it's going to take the lead in all the sort of warfare that we get mixed up in over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And therefore, that is a continuation of a guy right at the top who, though he's supposed to be purple, is going to have a much grasper thought process of how the army ought to be structured and he can push it through. Uh, and while we're predicting the future, Christopher, you've got a thought or two on the Duke of Cambridge's RAF career. What's that? Well, it was just, a, you know, I saw the, I saw, I saw the Queen sort of coming out of uh, the hospital after having her tummy bug attended to and I thought, you know, 86, there she goes and she was saying to the nursing staff, look, I'm out of here pretty soon, I'm not hanging around here. But somebody's got to start taking over far more of her royal duties. Uh, Prince Charles will, but then it's Prince William's turn. So he's got to make his mind up what to do about the RF. I know what I do about the RF, but never mind. <laughs> You're slightly biased. <laughs> Professor Clark, just before we go, very briefly, what you got in your agenda next week at the Royal United Services Institute? Oh, uh, meetings on uh, cyber security next week, uh, maritime patrols and all the usual rubbish. <laughs> we can't say that on this programme, never. We never have anything to talk about. That's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark from Rusi and our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. We'll be back at the same time next week, but from now, from me, Kate Jabot, thanks for listening and goodbye.